Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Talk about leadership uh, today because leadership is an issue that is very much under a microscope in our day, um, in the two places that I call home, both in the United States and in Israel, uh, those who have been voted into uh, leadership uh, one way or the other are being scrutinized. And that scrutiny, I think, is as legitimate in this generation as any previous generation. And with that in mind, I think what we are going to do today, no, I, I, in fact, I know what we're going to do today because I have a whole uh, series of pages here that we are going to look at. We're going to scrutinize the leadership that was shown by uh, Moshe and Aharon during that very fateful uh, few hours it was when Moshe was up getting the Ten Commandments and Aaron was responsible for the people and they started to uh, rebel rouse and they were very upset. And the question is, how did Aaron handle the crisis? And subsequently, how did Moshe handle the crisis when he re-entered the, the scene? Um, and in order to do that, let's look at the two of them and uh, let's see whether or not we can prejudge, whether we can first say or, or express what we feel. So I'm going to put that out there to you first before we even look at any of the texts because I know that I grew up in a Hebrew school and I had experiences with teachers uh, sharing with me what they thought about the greatness of or the lack of greatness of various characters in the biblical narrative. Um, maybe you had the same experience yourself. So what you remember about the what's called in Judaism, the sin of the golden calf. What do you remember about Aaron and Moses? Do you have a gut feeling about one or the other or both of these characters being responsible, being incompetent, being held responsible by God, by Moses, by Aaron? How do you, where do you address these particular characters? What were you going to say? One perspective I have on that is from reading Rabbi Jonathan Sachs okay. over the years. And he, his thesis about the different leadership styles between Moses and Aaron is that Moses is the leader. He has a leadership type style. And Aaron has a management type style. Okay. And the difference Good. being that Aaron is good at helping people uh, execute what has been described. In other words, maybe how do you climb up the ladder? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Yafe, thank you. Other comments? Yes. Moses as a reluctant leader. Yeah, he's sort of the guy that was standing around and everyone stepped back and he was there. Okay. And so he gets all of these assignments, um, which he, he goes through. I mean, he's, he's humble, but he works his way through trying to influence people who a, know him in only one venue. I mean, they knew him as part of Egypt. So when he shows up, it's not like, oh my goodness, it's you. It's right. like, oh, it's you. So in a nutshell, would you say that you've come to understand Moshe as a successful leader? He was, but he, he was an understated leader. He's one of those well, self-described perhaps. Right. But I'm talking about how he's perceived, and I'm really focusing on you. How did you perceive him? What's your gut? Was he a successful leader? Well, he's, you know, oh, you're hedging every time I ask you. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, okay, but I don't want to go there because that's the story of Korach. I'd like to go to the story of uh, the, the golden calf. So if I understand what you're saying, Aaron was not a, a unsuccessful. He had what he had in front of him, and you feel, do you feel that he did the best he could, and he succeeded considering the limitations that were a part of his situation? Yes, he doesn't forget to talk okay. to God. Okay, good. Yep, last one, and then we're going to delve into the text. That's the reluctant leader that was spoken about before. He didn't want to be the leader. Okay. Kavad lashon, ukavad peh. Heavy on the tongue. Okay, which goes with what you were saying about Aaron doing what he was supposed to do. Um, a he didn't want it. He okay. Didn't to it. He didn't beg for it. He was, was he successful? He was successful. Okay, so that's what we're going to debate: is were these two successful? Was one of them more successful than the other? Let's take a look at that. But before we do that, we need to get a little bit more background. And this reluctant leader thing, that's a part of it. So let's look at page one of your, of your um, pages. Our tradition feels really good about both Aaron and Moses as examples of great human beings. Aaron is called Ohev Shalom Verodev Shalom, pursuer of peace, lover of all creatures, Ohev Atabriot, while Moses is known as Moshe Rabbeinu, our Rabbi Moses, with all of the positive implications that come with calling someone our rabbi. How did these two great men fare when called upon to exercise exemplary leadership? The Torah shares with its readers various episodes of strife within the Israelite camp during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and both Aaron and Moses are called upon 
sometimes together as a team, sometimes individually, to exhibit leadership traits as they address the challenges. This at, well, I was supposed to be doing this one this afternoon and, and the other one tonight, but it got switched. So this, after, this evening, we're going to take a close look at a number of those episodes, and you're going to have the opportunity to evaluate the leadership characteristics of both of these great men. So the first thing that we're going to look at is the call to leadership. Both Aaron and Moses received some kind of a communication from God that said, you got to do this. And what they had to do was different, but they were both called upon to be at the head of the Israelite community. So the first one comes in chapter 3 of the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus, where Moshe hears from God. And we read, Come therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you shall free my people, the Israelites, from Egypt. But Moshe said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt? Here he doesn't talk about, at the beginning, what his deficiency is. He is simply resistant. And he said, God said, I will be with you. That shall be your sign that it was I who sent you. And when you have freed the people from Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Moshe said to God, when I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, asher I will be who I will be. He continued, thus shall you say to the Israelites, sent me to you. You know that when we write out the name of God, which we don't, according to our tradition, we're not allowed to write out the name of God, but not because we're not supposed to write it, but because there's a law that says we're not supposed to erase the name of God as we are supposed to erase the names of all the other gods that are around, which, by the way, when we read that in the Torah, it's a very interesting concept that there's an acknowledgement that there are indeed other gods that exist, and yet we're supposed to reject them. If we hadn't talked about it at all, maybe we could deny the existence of other gods. But we can't do that in Judaism. We have to say that other gods do exist. We are supposed to wipe out anything that has a semblance of worship of those gods, including wiping out their names. And then the next verse after wipe out their names is, You shouldn't do that to the Lord your God. The, the Lord is that tetragrammaton, that's those four letters, yud, and then hey, and then vav, and then hey, that are put together, and they are non-vocalized in the Torah text. We don't know how it actually is um, pronounced. The word was that back when the temple stood, the great, the high priest would once a year uh, recite or, or, or say that name of God, and it had that kind of power, uh, but we don't have it anymore. And so there are those who want to say that it's Yahweh, and some want to say that it's Jehovah. Um, and these are all attempts to give a name, a proper name, to God. And, and I say these words not out of uh, lack of respect, but probably the opposite. And that is that I don't believe they are the names of God. And so I'm saying them just like I would say, I don't know, Murray. You know, um, those of you who ever heard the 2013-year-old man with Mel Brooks, Murray was the name of the God that he made reference to in that story. So that's why I chose Murray of all, of all names. Moshe gets the call from God, and he's resistant. Okay, now let's look at page two. Aaron gets the call from God. What happens now? Oh, and so uh, tell them that 
and then the tetragrammaton is what's found in our Torah. Tell him so and so sent you sent sent you ehyeh, and the four letters yud hey vav and hey both have as their root the um, letters hey yud hey haya, and haya means to be or was. It's existence. That's what this word. Uh, of the name of God is actually about is some kind of existence and we've run with that and we say he was, he is and he will be all about existence that there's no, no defining it it's always and everywhere omnipotent, omniscient and so on so now Aaron gets the call and on page 2 we, we read that the Lord said to Aaron go to meet Moses in the wilderness he went and met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him Moses told Aaron all about all the things that the Lord had committed to him and all the signs about which he had instructed him. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and he performed the signs in the sight of the people and the people were convinced. When they heard that the Lord had taken note of the Israelites and that he had seen their plight, they bowed low in homage. So it doesn't sound, if we take the text by itself, it doesn't sound like Aaron had any difficulty at all assuming his part of the leadership role. Contrast that, please, with Moshe, who had a lot of issues. And in fact, that section comes after what we're going to read now at the bottom of the page, where first I say that initial indications are that Moshe is going to be resistant when commanded to lead the Israelites, to freedom, and that Aaron will be able to take on the task assigned to him coolly, calmly, and convincingly. In other words, it sounds like Aaron is just fine. Moshe, on the other hand, has already put up his first attempt to talk God out of it. So the text, which I don't believe is here to try and convince us of anything, but rather the text is here to try and create a narrative that is for us Uh, our responsibility to determine the things that we're going to talk about tonight, and that is, who do you like as a leader, Moshe and Aaron? But they're not going to tell us that. They're just going to tell us the facts of of uh, of the story. And so far, the facts do not hold Moshe in nearly as high esteem as a leader as they do Moshe. Aaron is higher, and Moshe is not as high. All right. Because the argument that Moses has with God is reminiscent of the conversation that Abraham had with God regarding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's going, look, you're you know, a big guy here. You're going to kill, blow this city up if you find that you know, if there are less than 50 quality people. No, okay, fine. And they go back and forth in a way, negotiating until finally God says, you know, I'm out of here, and we're stuck with 10. You can't find 10. Okay. It's a similar kind of a thing. I mean, all of a sudden, it's, it's sort of standing up against the Almighty in a way. Okay, and in that respect of standing up against the Almighty, I will agree with you that they're similar. But in my opinion, that's where the similarity ends. Aaron, Abraham was there to defend other people from God's wrath. Moshe was talking about his deficiencies. There are completely different approaches to their standing in front of God and saying, I'm going to take issue. 
It's great that both of them have that ability to say, God, I'm not sure I agree with you. Contrast that, please, with Noah. God says, Noah, you got to build an ark. He goes and he builds the ark and he doesn't say a word about the fact that God's going to destroy the entire world. So we contrast that with Abraham and that's fine because both of them are looking to defend the right to life of all of these people who are either sinners or non-sinners. That's more of a, I would say, more of a parallel than it is with Moshe, who's really saying, he's talking about himself. And um, spoiler alert, I'm going to be laying into Moshe more than once about his, um, his uh, reaction to things. Um, that this is not the first time that I've had, I want to take Moshe aside by the scruff of the neck and say, what are you doing? This is God that's talking. You got you to gotta listen to him and you got to be a little bit more amenable to the things that God says. But God doesn't listen to the, the, um, uh, the, the resistance. He says, you're going to resist? Okay, we'll put Aaron here with you and the two of you will do this together, which I think is a good answer. So let's look at the uh, chapter 4, verse 10, which is the third box on page 2. But Moshe said to the Lord, Please, O Lord, I have never been a man of words, either in times past or now, that you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. That's the kavad peh uchavad lashon that we talked about before. Slow of speech and slow of tongue. I would like all of you to blot out of your heads the story of Moshe as a little boy as he's growing up in the Pharaoh's palace and the uh, seers of Pharaoh say, this is, there's somebody in this palace that wants to take over your position, Pharaoh, and it's probably Moses. And the only way to, to get him out of this is to prove that he is looking for your throne. And the way that we can find that out is bring out two bowls, one filled with diamonds and the other one filled with hot coals. And if Moses goes for the diamonds, you'll know that he's after your throne. But if he goes for the coals, you know that he is not your threat. So they, he's sitting on Pharaoh's lap and they bring out his servants, Pharaoh's servants bring out these two bowls. And of course, Moshe sees the shiny diamonds as opposed to the coals that are certainly glowing, but they're not as shining as the diamonds. And he's about to reach for the diamonds and the angel pushes his hand over and he goes into the coals and he burns his fingers and his natural reaction is, and he burns his tongue. And that's why he said, according to this midrash, according to this legend, that he is kavad lashon uchavad peh, slow in speech and slow in tongue. But please, don't think about that story when I ask you, (laughs) when I ask you, what do you think that Moshe actually meant if we don't look into something that's not ever found anywhere in the text about his uh, experience with the coals and the diamonds, what is it that Moshe is saying when he's kavad lashon uchavad peh? He's not glib. He's, hmm? he's not glib, yeah. And you, as a leader, if you have to be a leader, you have to be fast of tongue, you have to be able to speak in a voice that will lead and, and have people follow you. Excellent. So you need to be able to be fluent or quick of speech which is the opposite of what the JPS translation wants to give us here. And that could be a simple, quite straightforward, resistant move on Moshe's part that says, this is not my gig. This is not the thing that I think I want to do in my life. Um, 
Achad Ha'am, uh, Asher Ginsberg, who's called Achad Ha'am, one of the greatest pre-Israel uh, 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 writers, wrote a, an essay on Moshe Rabbeinu, on Moses. And a part of it, he really goes to a great lengths to say that Moshe was put in this position against his better judgment, against his will, for a reason. And the reason is, and he was essentially talking about himself, sometimes the person that you least expect that has to take over and become the leader is the one who ultimately makes the best leader. Why? Because they don't have certain um, deficiencies that a leader does have. And so their time and energy is spent getting it right because they realize that they don't have the strengths around them, as opposed to the person who is the leader who can take any situation and run with it really well. Well, that person doesn't have that same conscientiousness that maybe, according to Asher Ginsburg, maybe that's what God wanted is he needed somebody who wasn't perfect so they would put the time and energy into getting it right. Okay, well, this is what we have. So things began on a rather precarious note with Moshe being hesitant, to say the least, and Aaron being the obedient soldier, following directives immediately without disagreement or pushback. Nevertheless, this setup of Moses and Aaron working together succeeded in bringing about the final outcome of the Israelites, leaving Egypt following 10 devastating plagues that overwhelmed Pharaoh and the Egyptians to the point of capitulation to the demands of the God of Israel. You know the story. They got out of Egypt uh, after the 10 plagues. They didn't have to stay there anymore. Um, and it was as a result of this constant badgering by this dynamic duo of Moshe and Aaron who, with their own combination of strengths, were able to convince Pharaoh ultimately that he wants them out of there. Or maybe it was just the fact that it was the 10th plague was the killing of the firstborn, and he had one of those in his house, and so he said, that's enough. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go from here, but I don't want any more of this. And, of course, then he changes his mind, and the rest is the Pesach Seder. Once in the wilderness, just like any move away from the familiar, people began to complain about the lack of food, water, and probably poor Internet in access. <laughs> Moshe and Aaron continue to work together, and as co-leaders of the people, they are able to bring the complaints to God and mollify the Israelites by providing them with quail and manna. Things are looking good. It's my opinion that they're looking good because the two of them work so well together. Each of them has their deficiencies. We're going to look into that in a moment. But together, they are able to lead the community out of Egypt, through the wilderness, until something goes wrong. And we can conclude somewhat simplistically, of course, that Moshe and Aaron are a great team when it comes to leading the community together. But what happens when they are left to their own devices to make decisions and lead the people by themselves? This test came about for Aaron when Moses went up Mount Sinai at the behest of God to receive the Ten Commandments. He was atop of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people became impatient Recall that at this point, Aaron had been left to lead the people by himself while Moses was away, and the manner in which he alone deals with this unrest is quite revealing, and that's going to be a major essence of what we're going to do this evening. So let's look at the episode of the golden calf, 
and see if we can find leadership characteristics emerge by way of an analysis of Aaron's handling of the situation, followed by Moshe's reaction to the crisis. This is found in Shemot, Exodus chapter 32. It's a long one, 1 to 35. And so in the interest of time, we're going to read only the bits and pieces of the story of the golden calf, sections that are directly relevant to our question of leadership. And that is one of the greatest criticisms I have for me when I am teaching this particular lesson of Moshe and Aaron and their leadership is that I am cutting and pasting what I believe is relevant. But what do I know? And so I also ask that they provide chumashim uh, so that if you want to turn to chapter 32 or other chapters of our text, and if there's something that you seem to remember in your childhood or in your uh, adulthood that contradicts or flies in the face of or uh, corroborates what it is that we're going to be learning, you'll have this available as well in case we need to look up uh, some other references or the verses that I decided we were going to skip. So here is the sin of the golden calf. Now remember, when I was introduced, I was introduced as a teacher of Tanakh, a teacher of the Hebrew Bible, and also a teacher of biblical Hebrew grammar. Well, I am a passionate biblical Hebrew grammarian. I believe that the author, and those of you who are in the class this afternoon know that I refer to the author of the text either with a capital A or a small a. It's up to you whether you believe that it's really a divine message that's coming from uh, God to the people, to us, um, in the form of the Torah, or it's a human document that maybe has divine inspiration, but we have a, a wonderful, uh, timeless text that the author, whoever the author or authors happen to be, really had a lot of motivation to try and teach us, the reader, what they wanted to get across. So I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to read it in that uh, in that light and see what it is that we're, we're being hinted to not only in the text that we see but also in the language that's being used and I'm going to take the opportunity to bring in a couple of nuances of that and we'll see how you react to it so I'd like to now ask for volunteers to begin reading um, uh, chapter 32 do we have a volunteer Okay, this is a long sentence, and there are a lot of things that we want to um, unravel here. The first one is, um, Moshe went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He told the people that he was going to be gone for 40 days and 40 nights. What does it mean to you? How do you understand, if you were a part of the community, and you heard that people were starting to um, get upset, why is it that they're upset? Moshe is long in coming down from the mountain. The word is boshesh. Boshesh is a word, um, it comes from the same root as, as lehit bayesh. What does that mean? To be embarrassed. So it's something about not coming through in some way. But the word boshesh is found only in two places in the entire uh, Tanakh. Here and in the book of Judges, when Sisera's mother, Sisera is the army general who had his forehead um, thrust through with a tent pin 
by a woman named Yael, who was the second heroine in the story of Deborah, the judge, and her sidekick, Barak. They talk about this army general who was exhausted, and he goes into Yael's tent, and she says, have some milk, or have some cheese, or have something, salty something that made him get tired, and he went to sleep, and Yael then takes the tent pin, and she smashes it through his, uh, his temples. And then, when Devorah tells the, does a poem about this, she says, and Sisera's mother sits at the window and says, why is my son Boshesh from coming home? So we take that Boshesh, and we compare it to the only other place in the Tanakh where the word Boshesh is, and that's here. What can we make of this? Is it that Moshe is supposed to already be down and he hasn't come down yet, and so he's late? Or is it that he's not late, but the people are getting impatient? What do you think? What's your gut? I'm going to take a vote. How, how many people think that the people are getting impatient already? How many people think that they're not getting impatient, but instead he's just late, and so they have a legitimate gripe? Whoa, am I of a minority here? I read a commentary. Yes. That, that, that said that he was late, but literally a couple hours late. Uh-huh. That's right. Well, I'm going to do a test here, and I'm going to, I am of the minority here, but I am going to prove, not prove, I'm going to suggest to you that he was indeed just late, and this is how we do it. Now, nobody, nobody yell until I tell you, but um, here's a situation in, um, in Judaism. A baby boy is born to a mother on a Tuesday. When does the bris take place? How many people think that it's Monday? How many people think that it's Tuesday? How many people think that it's Wednesday, eight days later, right? Uh, during the day. So is it Wednesday or Tuesday? The baby was born on a Tuesday. Tuesday, Wednesday. So some people said Wednesday because it's eight days, right? So to, born on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right? Wrong. You, no, wrong, because you start counting from the day of the, the birth. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Tuesday is the eighth day. So imagine, if you will, in the desert, everybody has their calendar. Some of them have the X's starting on the day that Moshe left, and others have it starting on the next day. And so if they start counting on the next day, they say, we're okay, because he went up maybe at night. But the ones who started counting on the day that he left, he's going to be late, because the 40th day is going to be today and not tomorrow. People make that kind of mistake, proof positive. Wait a minute. You were one of the people that said Wednesday. Did I have my bris on the right day, Mom? Okay, good. Thanks anyway. Ah, okay, so that's good. You counted on the rabbis, which brings us very directly back to what we're doing here. Okay, so people made a mistake about when Moshe was supposed to come down, and they started getting uptight about it. And then they went to Aaron, who was leader, uh, uh, num number one in charge, and they said, come make us a God who shall go before us. And I want you please to notice that this is the JPS translation, which is the same as the Eitz Chaim, but it says, make us a God. 
Look at the uh, Hebrew, please. Third line down. It says, Kum ase lanu Elohim. Elohim, God. Or, if I quote to you from the Ten Commandments, the verse is, Lo yelecha Elohim acherim al panai. You shall have no other gods before me. Elohim. So how do we know whether or not they want Aaron to make a god or a bunch of gods, idolatrous as that could be, not a replacement for our Almighty, but rather a bunch of gods? And the answer is the continuation of the verse. Aselanu Elohim asher yelchu lefanenu. Yelchu, singular or plural? Plural. So we have... Make us gods. I take issue with the JPS translation. My students say, well, write to them. I say, right, yeah, sure. Um, but I take issue with their translation. I believe it should be gods. Small g, make us gods. Now, is this the attitude that should be a very becoming of the Jewish people who have left Egypt, the Israelites, who have left Egypt, that they want gods? So there's a, a commentary that says that this is not the Israelites that are doing this. When they went out of Egypt, there was a group that was called the Erev Rav. Other people call them in the book of Numbers the Asaf Suf. This was a motley crew that were not a part of the Israelites, but they were also released, some people say, from jail, and they left along with the Israelites. They were not uh, monotheists. They didn't believe in the one God. They went along because Pharaoh kicked them out and said, oh, if you got the, they're leaving, send them too. And they were rebel rousers. They were not uh, the most uh, uh, pleasant people to have around. And according to the, that position, they were the ones that brought up this problem. And I'm going to bring that home uh, in a couple of minutes as well. So they say, that man Moses, who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Proof positive, who was it that brought them out of Egypt? God. God. Not Moses. But yet these people are giving Moshe credit. Well, I guess it's because Moshe was a human being. And you can punch a human being much more easily than you can punch, I'm talking figuratively, of course, um, God. Because God you can't see, especially when you don't believe in that kind of God. And so here are the rebel rousers who are starting to make trouble. Let's continue. Thank you. Verse 2. Okay, so what happens? Aaron decides, number one, I got to stall. I got to stall. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask them for something that they're never going to agree to. Give me the earrings. And not only from you, but also go to your wives and your kids and say, everybody, fork over your earrings. We're going to make a, 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 some kind of a, a, a golden something or other. But they're not going to want to do that. They're going to say, uh, you know what, never mind. And they'll all go home and everything will be fine. It didn't happen. But please note that the verse says, take the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And then the next verse tells us that all the people, and the words in Hebrew are, kol ha'am. This is, the question is, is it all of the people, kol ha'am, did everybody get into this, or was it not the wives and the children, but rather those who were representing the people, just the men, said, we're still going to go with this. I don't know. 
but the idea is that they did not walk away and say, oh, never mind. They went with it. And Aaron says, oh, what am I going to do now? So in verse 4, please continue. This he took from them and cast in a mold and made it into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay. Well, he took from them the gold. He cast it into a mold and made it into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, it was never Aaron who said, this is your God. It was this rabble-rousing group in my read that decided that they were going to call this thing God. But again, in the Hebrew, it's Ela Elohecha, Yisrael, Asher Elucha. all is in the plural. It's only one calf, but everything is being uh, sp- spoken in the plural. Yes? Why didn't, why doesn't it say, why didn't they say this is our God? Um, you're helping me with my point. Because it, it wasn't their God because they thought it was going to be the Tetragrammaton, the divinity, the monotheistic God that took them out of Egypt, but they didn't know how to formulate that in words. They only knew about gods in the plural, and that's the way that the words come out here. So again, I want to change God to gods, even though it's only one, because that's the kind of language that they only knew how to use. Aaron says, I got to stall, I got to stall. So in verse 5, go ahead. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron announced, tomorrow shall be a festival for the Lord. All right, two things here in the attempt to um, bring this flame down to a, a reasonable level, and that is that he builds an altar in front of it, ostensibly so nobody can see it. How big do you think that golden calf was? You want to say it's that big, okay? Hmm? Loaf of bread. A loaf of bread. What do you think? What? You were growing up with a vision of this golden calf. You don't think it's very big either, huh? Well, there are 603,550 men, not including the women and children, who left. And they also... Um, were given or took from, depending on how you read the text, all sorts of goodies from the Egyptians who said, goodbye, good riddance, and let us give you stuff to take with you. So they had plenty. So, oh, you've decided to expand it. Okay. What do you all think? Is it bigger? Michigan yeah. on, on Michigan Avenue? years ago in Chicago. The cows? Okay. We have lions in Jerusalem. And that's, that's also what I see. The lions are about as big as human beings, right? That's pretty close. And so imagine that you have a human being size of a golden calf sitting on the table, and everybody is gathering around, and he says, i got to do something. So he builds an altar in front of it before, so that people will have to either go onto the side or strain or say, ah, I can't see it. There are too many people in front of me. And they'll go home again. And that's the first thing. And the other thing is he doesn't say, let's worship it. What does he say? Tomorrow Tomorrow we're going to have a festival of the Lord. If you notice in the Hebrew, it's not Elohim anymore. Aaron says, Machar, Chag, Ladonai, Machar. There'll be a festival to the Tetragrammaton, the name of the God of the Israelites where God says, you know, there are a lot of gods around here, but I am the God of the Israelites, and I, my name is this one. Aaron is doing his best to try and get the people in line, and he is finding little success. 
But he's trying, yeah. All right, you're defending Aaron, you're trying to stall. Big time. Until Moses gets back. That's right. Why can't you take the position that he's part of this, uh, part of the group in trying to build this? And I'm showing you, he mentions God, the, sorry, the Lord instead of God. He says, tomorrow, I'm, all of the things that I'm talking about are ways that I am, through my lens, seeing how uh, Aaron is doing his best not to succumb. I'm saving the pièce de résistance for later. Okay. You talk about that Moses is late to Aaron. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow. He's going to be back tomorrow, Aaron thinks. They're doing a lot of work uh-huh. among the hundred thousands of people, collecting all of this, melting it down, building something. That's not happening in a few hours. Why not? They're all in one camp. It's a matter of going to the edges of the... I can't... Back to that, I cannot see how that can happen. And that's why I believe that they're impatient. And this happened days before... Okay. Excellent. Excellent. And I will give you that. I'm not saying that it's correct. I will say that your, your analysis is as um, uh, reasonable as is mine because you are taking what the text gives us 603,550 men, not including women and children, how could they in any way be within this much uh, time difference in order to be able to go and collect all of this gold and bring it back? It just does not make sense. And so therefore, it must have been that this rubble, this uh, difficulty started boiling earlier, and we don't have one day that elapses between A and B. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. I, w- I would say that, that you, have, you have a case. You really do have a case. Right, yeah. The issue is if Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, he hasn't brought them back that says you can't have these idols. Ah, so you're saying that whatever it was that Aaron made was not a violation. It wasn't the sin of the golden calf, as we've been taught that it is. I don't think so. They didn't have to move yet. So what was this calf? Was it a god or was it not? You're with me. That's good. I like that. Yes. That's, that's great. Um, Aaron is sort of, uh, he's trying different things. You know, he's really not maybe sure what to do with this and then that. Well, you know, so uh, Moses, when the people would have said, if Moses would have been down there and the people would have said, well, you know, let's you know, find a God, Moses, the arguer, would have just said, what are you, I say, you know, we're not doing this. Right. You know, how do you think you got out of Egypt, though? You know, the sea splits, and you have the food, and this and that. Would he kill anybody? Would he kill anybody? Yeah. Uh, you don't have to answer. I, I, I have a plan. So you're saying Aaron is being political? Um, <laughs> you think that Aaron is being political? I would... Diplomatic. Okay, yeah, I think that that's a, a piece that we should consider, is that, remember... He is just a, um, a replacement, a temporary replacement. Sorry? That is the question that I'm asking you to consider. Is a person who comes in, 
who has to take over for a few days because the boss is out of town, is that person expected to be knowledgeable of how to handle this difficult crowd just like that when they become rowdy? Or does he need that time to stall to see what their action is, see how he can respond, and maybe he can bring, remember I told you in the very beginning of our time together that he was ohev shalom, v'rodev shalom. He was a lover of peace and a pursuer of peace, and he wants it to be smooth. And maybe he's not gonna put his foot down and yell and scream because that's not his personality, but he needs to do something. Now, my question for you is, is he doing it because he's taking over the leadership or is he doing it because he is stalling, waiting for Moshe, who really is the one that he wants to give over this leadership to? What is he trying to do? Yeah. I think that they totally rejected Moses. I think if you read the beginning where it says... Excellent. He's Moshe Moshe's a guy. He's yes. That guy. He's a... He's a mortal, just like the rest of us. <laughs> okay, it's interesting where you're coming from. That's okay. He's, he's okay. He's, he seems like a rejected type of person. Okay. And, and Aaron says, I got to jump in and do this myself. I don't think he's even a replacement. It's very interesting. You are giving Aaron the characteristic of taking initiative. I'm. Can you help us out in finding the places where Aaron is taking initiative in this text? But you're saying he's stepping forward? I think he was forced to because I think Moses was rejected. Okay. So I, I hear you. My position is that I think he's reacting in every single uh, step of the way and that he's not taking any initiative. Now, by the way, as we ana analyze the notion of what makes a good leader, I am not sure that we can be absolute about leaders take initiative. So, so, so Go ahead. Okay, right. excellent. So, so and, and there are those leaders that are reflective of time, and they need a little more time to think through, and so there is a, there's a pause. There's okay. a, you know, give me your earrings or something, and, and as opposed to, I've got this clearly the way we need to do mm -hmm. it to make these things that will all happen. You know, it's the chess, it's the chess game, in a, in a sense. Do you know ahead of time what your move is going to be? Or do you have to really think what's going to happen? And okay. And so our friend Aaron, he is the type reflective. that needs to be reflective. And he is not the one that is expected to know or to decide or to act on what to do immediately. He needs to let things simmer a little bit. So he's buying time. Okay. But when Aaron got into the position, it was not as easy as he may have thought. Okay. Nice. Because it seems to me that he may have been managing, but he was really not being what I think of as a leader. He he had to just kind of fly forever. Okay. And didn't have you know, I just think it's harder sometimes than you think. And there's a reason they mentioned him as being confident. Mm-hmm. Good. Yep. So I think if I think that he was uh, going by, you know, flying by the seat of his pants. Okay. That um, this is the first thing he thought of. Okay, let's have the jewelry. And then the next thing he thought of, okay, let's melt it down. 
Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Good. Yep. Okay. He doesn't push back, it seems. Do I hear from what you're saying that that would not constitute a characteristic of a leader? Yes. Okay, thank you. Yep. I think Aaron is scared because he doesn't know when Moses is coming back either. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have a magic uh, ball that's going to tell him when Moses is coming back. So I think he's petrified. Okay. And so his response here is, is, is as a result of him saying, all right, if I'm going to be in charge, I'm going to have to start doing stuff. Okay. I would think that some people, when they are thrust into a position where they're petrified, that they would also be um, stymied and not able to move. And that's not Aaron. He's, he's acting. He's reacting, perhaps. He's responding. But he is not allowing them to run him over and uh, uh, take away his leadership position. He's not paralyzed by his, his fear, but he's fearful. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so Moses goes up and they have 40 days. Who's in charge during those 40 days? Ostensibly, Aaron. Okay. Okay. Something should have happened in that 40 days to try to help manage it. Would anybody please like to come to Aaron's defense about those 40 days? What you're saying is, Aaron, I was gone for, I'm speaking on behalf of Moses, I was gone for 40 days and you let this community go totally out of control. Aaron is not going to say it, but I would like somebody here to defend Aaron's position somehow to say, well, Moses, that's how you see it, but I'm seeing it a different way. Howard? Well, I think <laughs> that the way that that works is that, consider that for 40 days, they were, in they were able to sustain themselves, and they managed for just about all 40 days. And you know what, Moses? I can't really help it if this motley crew that joined us when we left is going to start making trouble. Well, they weren't. They were, everything was fine until they saw that Moses, the text tells us they saw that Moses was late coming down from the mountain. So you're making the, I mean, is it an assumption or do you think the text tells you that they just sort of misunderstood the day? No, that is my, that's my interpretation. But the text, that's exactly it, is the text tells us nothing else except the people saw that Moshe was boshesh in coming down from the mountain the word boshesh is unusual. It hits us between the eyes, and it says, the author says, I am being purposely ambiguous 
because I'm putting it in your hands to determine why it was that the people were uh, getting out of hand at this particular moment. It had something to do with Moshe not coming down from the mountain. You then figure it out yourselves. Okay? Yep. Right. He was a doer. Uh, Aaron was not such a, he was front and center to Pharaoh, but not so much to the people. And so they saw whatever it was that they saw, and he didn't impress them. He didn't instill the same kind of confidence. Could be. I'm, I'm going to apologize and say we've got a little bit of time left. We've got to get to the end, because otherwise, you know, they're going to both be hanging in abeyance, these two guys, and we're not going to know what happens. So verse 6, finish up that uh, section, please. Early next day, the people offered up burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. They sat down to eat and drink and then rose to dance. Okay, a couple of things here. Number one is that early the next day, we have the same word, vayashkem. Here it's vayashkimu, but vayashkem. There's a story in chapter 22 of Genesis where God says to um, um, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go and sacrifice him to me on the mountain where I will show you. And the next verse says, Vayashkem Abraham Baboker. He gets up early in the morning. That word, the author here says, I know my readers. I'm going to use that same word that I used to describe Abraham's getting up early in the morning to describe the behavior of the children of Israel and the others when they talk about the golden calf. Why? It's the same word. It's, it sets us off saying, oh, I know what that is. That's about, well, what do we, when we go to the synagogue on the second day of Rosh Hashanah and we read about Abraham and the, um, and the Akedah, the, uh, the binding of Isaac, and we hear that Abraham gets up early, what are we told? It's out of zealousness. It's out of his love of God that he wants to fulfill the command as early as possible. There's another comment that says he's got to get out of the house before Sarah gets up because she's not going to let them go under any circumstances. But that's another midrash, and that's a different way of a different lens. But the lens of Vayashkimu versus Vayashkem, they got up early, they're excited. That's what the text is trying to tell us, is that the people are into this much to Aaron's dismay, because he didn't want that to happen. And they went and brought sacrifices of well-being. They sat down to eat, drink, and they rose to dance. Well, they didn't rise to dance. The word in the Hebrew, anybody see it at the end of verse 6? Vayakumu litzachek. Litzachek. That's litzchok in the simple form. I'm going to tell you the other places where the word litzachek is found, and then I'm going to let you tell me what they did besides eating and drinking. Um, in the story of Abraham and his two sons, Yishmael and Isaac, Yitzhak, um, Abraham sees Yishmael being mitzachek, his brother Isaac, and he kicks him out of the house. So some people say that he was teaching him idolatry. Some people say he was teaching him to murder. What's the third thing besides idolatry and murder that we are not supposed to do even under the penalty of death? Uh, sexual in, 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 uh, inappropriateness. The next one is um, uh, Potiphar's wife. Puts her eyes on Joseph and says to him, lie with me. And it means sex. 
and he refuses. And she says it again, and he refuses. Finally, she grabs him one day when all the servants are gone, interestingly enough, and, uh, and she grabs him by the cloak, and he runs out, and she then goes to the servants that are then come back later on, and her husband, and they say, look at this. My, our master brought this Hebrew slave, letzachek banu, or letzachek bi, to some kind of sexual innuendo with me. It gets even more uh, interesting when uh, um, Isaac is in Gerar with his beautiful wife, Rivka. And Rivka, he's, he, they go in and Isaac says, she's my sister. Not my wife, but my sister. He tries to pass her off as his sister. The king takes her into the, uh, he, he takes her into the palace, or he's about to take her into the palace. He looks out the window, and the text says that he sees Yitzhak being mitzachek at Rivka Ishto, and from that he knows they're not brother and sister. What could he have seen? Something that a husband and a wife do, not something that a brother and sister do. I claim that it's sexual as well. The only other two places is uh, the one that we have here. Oh, no, there's one where when Lot tells the, uh, his sons-in-law, we got to get out of here. God's going to destroy Stom. The brothers, the sons-in-law who are coming from Stom um, that was named after the act called sodomy. Um, and the, the, you didn't get that. that yeah. <laughs> you just didn't like it. Okay. Um, but the idea was that, that they said to their father-in-law, you are screwing with us. Quite frankly, I think that's what they said because their, their world was one of inappropriateness uh, that comes out with the, um, the men who want to uh, have sexual relations with the guests that Lot brings into their house. <clears throat> it's all terrible. Anyway, the word mitzachek, they rose to eat, drink, and have an orgy. And I think that that's the shot. I think that's the simple understanding. <clears throat> and our translators decide to whitewash it, to make it more pristine as to not uh, um, hurt anybody's feelings. Are you okay talking about all the sexual innuendo in front of your mom? <laughs> it's in the Tyra. So let's go on. We got to finish this. Would somebody else please volunteer to read? What's that? Oh, you want to read? You want to read some more? Okay, go with it. The Lord spoke to Moses: Hurry down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted basely. Please, God is saying, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. He's speaking, as it were, tongue in cheek. Not that God has either of those things, but you get the idea that He uses those words, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. What am I, chop liver, God is saying? So that was a very uh, interesting poke at, uh, at uh, Moshe. Go on, please. God wants to destroy the people, and Moses implores God not to, lest the Egyptians and others say, what kind of God brings a people from slavery only to kill them in the wilderness? Thereupon Moses turned and went down from the mountain, bearing the two tablets, bearing? Bearing, sorry, bearing the two tablets of the pact. Tablets inscribed on both their surfaces. They were inscribed on the one side and on the other. Okay, keep going, please. As soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, or whatever, <laughs> he became enraged and he hurled the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. By the way, I'm going to interrupt you. The word here is micholot, 
which actually is dancing. Okay, go on. Yes, there was some kind of dancing. Oh, um, the other place, I forgot one. In the book of Judges, Samson, after Delilah is unable for a long time to figure out what his, where his power comes from, finally she gets him to say, it's my hair. So she cuts off his hair, and then the Philistines come in, and they capture him, and they put him up on the, they um, uh, uh, tie him up in the front of one of these uh, 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 palaces that has um, big pillars, and you can imagine that he is standing there with his arms like this, and they say, okay, Shimshon, you think you're so great? Dance for us. Mitzachek is the last time that word is used. Mitzachek, I just think of Chippendales, you know, but some kind of, <laughs> you know, he's supposed to dance for them, but they are humiliating him, and so it has to be a dance that has this sexual innuendo. So dancing, what do they say? It could lead to mixed dancing? Okay, vakasha. Okay, let's stop. Yes, I'm hearing that there's a little bit of a reaction. I, sh share with us. What is it? It's not my fault, right? The devil made me do it, right? Oh, sort of something like that. What else? What else made you react just now? Are you saying Aaron wasn't such a great, uh, he's not willing to take responsibility, and so if he's not willing to take responsibility, then maybe he's not leadership uh, caliber? What else? Yep. Okay, so he took a shot at Moshe as well. Remember, he wants to remind the, him that he says, they said to me, make a God to lead us. For that man, Moses, you, we do not know what has happened to him. I don't know what happened to you. You put me in this situation, and I just didn't know what to do. So what I did was I took the gold. I said, whoever has gold, give it to me. And I threw it in this thing, and out came the calf. This is the short story, Moshe. Right? Because I tried to stall four or five times and you didn't show up. What was I supposed to do? You can tell that I'm still looking to defend Aaron under all circumstances. Guilty as charged. Well, okay. He wants to put it all on Moshe. Is Moshe going to take responsibility? Please continue. Okay, didn't, you, didn't I ask you earlier in our conversation whether Moshe, as the leader, would he have him killed? <laughs> Moshe, he took charge, right? Now, my question for you is, Moshe comes down, he finds out from his brother what happened, and he takes charge, he takes action, and he's killing people, and he shatters the tablets. 
Tell me about his leadership uh, uh, characteristics, please. Vindictive. Sorry? Vindictive. Vindictive is a word. Okay, what else? Volatile. 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 Rash. Rash. So wait a minute, we're talking about Moshe here, Moshe Rabbeinu, our leader, and yet you are using words to describe someone who, if they were asked, do you think he could be the leader of this people? You say, you know what? He's volatile, vindictive, rash. He really doesn't have control over his anger. Maybe he shouldn't be the leader, and yet he was. Go ahead. I would say the opposite. Thank you very much. Please do. Would you be willing to say that he had the big picture in mind with his saying, We've had, I've got to take action and I have to take action now? There was a, a, a TV show back a few decades ago called L.A. Law. And there was, a, there was a scene that I remember like it was yesterday where one of the, uh, um, the lawyers was badgering a witness big time. And he was asking him because he knew he was actually the one that was guilty and needed to stand trial, trial, although he was being questioned as a witness. And he was going on and going on. And the guy then has a heart attack. And the lawyer immediately, instead of going to help the, the guy who's on the ground, says to the judge, I'm asking immediately for a continuance, and I want to be able to continue to question this witness if and when he recovers. And everybody yells at him, saying, wait a minute, this guy has no uh, compassion whatsoever. And the big the bigwigs in the legal firm say, on the contrary. He knew what he had to do in the big picture. He knew he couldn't save him at that very moment. So he thought about the next move. You're talking about the chess player. He thought about the next move, and he took action. You may not have liked it at the time, but in the long run, that's what needed to be done. Could Moshe be put into that same kind of category where he said, as you said, I think very, uh, very well, he saw that the people were going to get out of control if something didn't happen that was drastic. And maybe a sacrifice had to be made. And who are the 3,000 people that he killed? We don't know who they were. Do we understand that perhaps they were a part of this rebel-rousing group that was leading the people astray? Could be. But I want to point out to you that there's more than one way to understand Moshe's behavior. Just like, of course, there's more than one way to understand Aaron's behavior. Let's finish up. The next day... Moses said to the people, You have been guilty of a great sin, yet I will now go up to the Lord. Perhaps I may win forgiveness for your sin. Moses went back to the Lord and said, Alas, this people is guilty of a great sin, making for themselves a god of gold. Now, if you will forgive their sin, well and good. But if not, erase me from the record which you have, uh, which you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, He who has sinned against me, uh, yeah, him only will I erase from from my record. Go now, lead the people where I told you. See my, see, my angel shall go before you, but when I make an accounting, I will bring them to account for them, for their sins. Okay, before you read the last sentence, I just want to point out that Moshe goes to God and says, 
this was really a terrible thing, but let's figure out how we're going to end it. If you kill everybody, then I don't want to be a part of that. But maybe, and God says, no, I, th I, mean, I think God says, I am going to take action against those who actually sinned against me. Is that as good a justice as possibly could have come about as a result of this debacle? And we as readers have to determine that. And at the same time that we determine whether or not God, whom the narrator wants us to believe is the just and the reasonable God who is punishing the wicked and punishing the sinners and leaving the innocent alone, that that God is one that's responding to Moses saying, what do we do now? And that we want us to be able to continue because the story is not going to end here We've got to get into Eretz Israel at the end or the beginning of the book of Joshua. And so there needs to be some resolution. And so let's finish up with the last sentence, and I'm going to get your final analysis of what went on here. Uh-huh, what? Who's saying that? Thank you. It's not God, it's the narrator. It's the narrator. This is not God speaking. God did not for one second, if you go back and look, God did not mention Aaron at all in his conversation with Moshe. Not a single time. So for me, for me that tells me that God did not hold Aaron responsible. God found a punishment and killed uh, or, or, or destroyed, whatever the word is that you'd like to use, those who were guilty of the sin of worshiping a, uh, a God that was not uh, the Tetragrammaton. But God did not hold Moshe, uh, Aaron responsible. God certainly didn't hold Moshe responsible because he was up on the mountain. But the narrator, he, it, they, I'm not sure who that narrator is, but the narrator had an agenda as well. And if you look at the verse, it is awkward. Something is wrong with that verse. Listen to it again. Then the Lord sent a plague upon the people for what they did with the calf that Aaron made. Like they, I think that the narrator had a preconceived desire to find Aaron guilty of making this golden calf. Yeah. In fact, the entire generation had to die in the wilderness because of their sins, including this one. So, yeah. That, and that second of many, I have to say. All right. That's right. For this yes, at this particular time. They're all going to end up not going into the land. But at this point, God, according to our text, is punishing those who sinned, which is really fair. For sure. And there are plenty if you read the whole through from the beginning to the end of the saga. Sorry? Um, they weren't dancing, remember? Okay. That's right. Now let's look at our heroes. Um, I came 
to you this evening in order to put a big question mark in the question of, or in the idea of how do we perceive these two in their taking upon themselves the leadership in the story of the golden calf. So now, if you had to do it over again, would you ask Aaron, if you were Moses, you're going up to the mountain for 40 days, and you knew that this is going to be how it's going to run, would you still ask Aaron to be the one that's in charge? How would you know? So, but you know Aaron, Moses. You know what he's like. He's a quiet fellow. He really likes that you take charge. And uh, when you're gone, maybe you should bring the guy in who is the militaristic uh, fellow. What's his name? We'll call him Joshua. Joshua is the one that, and I skipped that in the text here, who said, there's trouble in the camp. He's the one that says, let's wipe them all out. Maybe he should have been the one that should have been responsible instead of Aaron. I'm leaving for 40 days. Joshua, you're a lot like me in that you're going to put your foot down and you're going you're to take action and you're going to make people sit up and take, take a note because they're going to be a little bit afraid of your response. Why did he instead put Aaron in charge? Maybe because it was his big brother. Okay, but it's just... Okay, excellent. That's one motivation. What else? Remember in the beginning we talked about what a great team the two of them were. Well, when you've got two people who are a team, you don't always know who it is that provides what to the community. But when they leave and they're apart, then it sort of starts to come clear, uh, this one was the one that instilled fear into the community, and this one was the one that would go and say, you know what, let's try and get along a little bit better. But when they're both together, you don't always look to say, I'm going to go to this one because I know they're the one that is going to give me a, different, a certain answer. But when they're separated, you're right. You don't know what's going to happen beforehand. And so Moshe, in all of his sincerity and his love for his brother, said, I believe that you can take charge. And I think Aaron knew that he was nervous about it, but he, being the team member, said, I have to do this. I'd like to share with you one other piece that you may or may not have been exposed to in your studies. And that is that in Egypt, it wasn't the, the, the calf that was allowed to roam around on the streets was not considered a god like many of the other animals that were worshipped in Egypt. In fact, imagine, because they have um, pictures like this in Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics and other places where they found pictures on sides of caves and so on, that they have the king, kings were often considered to be gods in those days, sitting on his throne with a, not a footstool, but rather a calf with a straight back, and the king has his feet on the calf's back, on the footstool as it were. And so Aaron knew this about the community that was making trouble, that they had certain animals that they worshipped as gods and certain animals that were, um, the word in, in uh, Hebrew is avizarim. They're like accoutrements that were used in order to serve the god. One of them was a calf. So when Aaron was told, um, bring us, make us a god, he wasn't even going to do that. 
But instead, he made this calf that was going to be a footstool for the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, and then Moshe would come down and he would be able to say, I didn't do anything like this. But the people, remember these people are not all Israelites, and also even if they were, they haven't had freedom for that long. They haven't had monotheism for that long. They saw this animal like any other animal and they called it a god. But it was really the impetus of this, uh, this uh, motley crew that was pushing this thing. And uh, again, Aaron tried to get out of it by using nuance. And that's what I want to tell you that I think about Aaron versus uh, Moshe. Aaron was nuanced. He was the one who was the cerebral thinking, how am I going to, the chess players, as somebody mentioned, how am I going to work this through? And I've got to stall and I've got to figure this out. Contrast that with Moshe, who is very, very um, impetuous. Is that the word? He just, hmm? Yeah, well, but not just action, but immediate action is what I want to talk about. And that is that he acted perhaps even without thinking. And when we think about leadership today, and you can think of anybody that you want, <laughs> those who are impetuous, they speak without thinking, they uh, say things and they do things, and people say, how can this person be our leader but we have to understand that that is a style too and god forbid that i would be here coming to you to defend any kind of presidential person whether it be trump or clinton or clinton or kennedy or kennedy or kennedy or kennedy it doesn't matter what i'm telling you is that people have their styles and those styles are perceived as leadership or lack thereof and if we can understand that Moshe had his style and Aaron had his style and they did better when they worked together and they didn't do so well when they were left by themselves, then maybe we can understand a little bit more that people's leadership styles, we respond to them because of who we are, not because of who they are. And our position of was Moshe good or not, is how we perceive Moses. Not how Moses actually was, because none of us knows how Moshe actually was, except for what the narrator and the author want to tell us. And the same thing with Aaron. I am invested, for whatever reason about me, in making Aaron this great uh, leader, and one who was thinking every step of the way, and was going to be successful in holding off whatever it was that the people were going to go after, in order to make it so that he can reunite with his teammate Moshe and get things back on track again. Why? Maybe it's because I am uh, a person who, throughout my life, wanted to smooth things over. And that's how, when I would get into a situation, I wouldn't uh, um, get into it with the conflict. I would walk away. My kids, uh, it's a question as to whether or not it was appropriate that every time they were, would get into a fight, I would step in and I would say, you should walk away. Later, when we analyze it, um, the bottom line is maybe, maybe not, but maybe we should have let them fight it out and figure it out themselves. And then in the next time there was conflict, they would have that experience and they'd be able to do that. But not, not I. I was a walk away. And maybe I'm identifying with 
Aaron, who is also one that didn't want to get into the scuffle. And so I am so compelled that I can't see it any other way, but it has nothing to do, very little to do with Aaron himself. I think it has more to do with me. And for us, as we look at people with leadership styles, I'd like to suggest to you that next time we're looking to be quite critical, quite critical of somebody who has a leadership position, maybe we could step back for just a moment and say, maybe it's not about them. Maybe it's about me, and that's why I'm reacting the way I am. Thank you. We have three minutes. I can't do it. We have a couple minutes for questions. You had, you had said to us this afternoon that if we come tonight, we're going to hear your opinion as to who, <laughs> if the Torah was written divinely or by a person. Okay. So as you saw, I tried to distance God from the authorship at, at certain times just so that you could have an opportunity to, to uh, contemplate that possibility. I believe in perfect faith that the Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. I believe that it's a divine document. However, because Moses is a human being, and oh, what a human being he is, I think we've seen that tonight, because he was a human being, and because everyone who got the Torah from Moses on were all human beings, none of them had any divine, we all have divine in us, but they are not directly divinely uh, um, dictated to, that means that the Torah that we have in our hands today may not be the one that God gave to Moshe on Mount Sinai. And so maybe there was some tinkering. And so when that author is doing that author's job, I begin by believing that it's God. But then after a while, I say, well, maybe there are some pieces which Aaron made. For example, those words in the last verse that we read. Maybe there was some tinkering that there were some glosses or some additions or some subtractions that took place through the generations of transcription and transmission so that what we have today is a doctored version of what God gave to Moshe on Mount Sinai. But there's enough divine in it that I still see it as a text that will last forever because God will see to it that it will always have new information or new insights for us to contemplate. So I don't know if it's satisfactory, but that certainly is my position. And every time I read the text, I say, God, I read it and I see it differently each time. I say, God has a different plan for me this year than he does, did last year. I'm talking about coming to the synagogue every Shabbat to hear the reading of the Torah. So I get the whole story from the Genesis story of the creation all the way to just before going into the land. Every year I go to the synagogue every Shabbat because I want to hear what my heart and my head say about how I understand the text. And for Pete's sake, it changes. Not because the text changes, but because I change. That's right. Okay? Yes? Earlier, in the beginning of the discussion, you read, Moses says, I can't be a leader. I'm slow. Mm -hmm. so, slow of tongue, slow of speech. Yeah. And so Moses' idea of a leader is somebody who acts quickly. Okay. So maybe that informs why he acted that way. Yep. Excellent, excellent. That's good. Yep. Well, a mother grew up as a, a child in the Pharaoh's palace. He saw how leaders behaved uh, roughly, and so that was his style. Whereas Aaron grew up in slavery and, and had a lot of humility, and so he had to cover things. Very nice. Also great. Yes. 
What else? Other questions or comments? Yes. Um, I guess the question is, you know, in terms of Aaron, what would happen if Moses didn't come, didn't come back? At all. And the party what do you think? <laughs> and the party kept going? What do you think would have happened? Uh, God, would God have killed them? Okay. That's right. Okay, so you don't think that's being a good leader, that Aaron had to do something. But, but yours is a question that we could never answer because in this narrative, Moshe does come down from the mountain. And so um, we, can, we, we can certainly ask the question, but we can only speculate. And the speculation from you is that um, the, the children of Israel would be destroyed. Otherwise, that's a good point. Yeah. One second. Excellent. See, so there are different ways of seeing it. Yes. So my question is, did the one that was left with the company, uh, who was that? That was uh, Bill Hewlett. Hewlett. So was Hewlett then criticized, or was he praised for keeping the company afloat, even though that wasn't his forte? He was praised for keeping the company afloat. And that's my position regarding Aaron. That was a good, that was an excellent analogy. Thank you. Okay. Very good. I'm trying to find a verse in the book of um, uh, Ecclesiastes where he says, I know it, but I just can't find it right now. Tovim hashnaim min ha'echad. Ki im yipol ha'echad yakim et hasheni. Better are two than one because if one falls, the other can be there to help that person up. And so I think that for me, the lesson of this evening is tovim min ha'echad, that two is truly better than one because you have people who are complementary and they can help each other on ways that they couldn't even imagine. But I think that's the case for Aaron and for Moses and for most of us. Okay? All right. Thank you very much.
Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.